Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn your Bibles to Luke 17, Luke 17, verse 3. It is the case that we at Community Bible Church love expository, verse-by-verse preaching. So you see the uh, notes in your bulletin that indicate we're going to be in verses 25 through 27 today. Actually, the needle has moved over. We'll be in verses 28 through 30 in Ephesians 5. But I want you in Luke 17, 3 as we start our morning. Expository preaching, verse by verse. This method of preaching proves that we believe every word in the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient for every need that you have in life. It is truly your daily bread. Expository preaching blesses me as your pastor because it keeps me in the same flow of thought on a weekly basis. It's a blessing to you because you learn the Bible verse by verse, week by week. You know what to expect weekly, and you can read ahead and anticipate what will be said. You can prepare your heart for Sunday morning's lesson to be learning and be instructed and be exhorted. And for our brothers today, to be troubled, to be convicted, burdened, pained by Paul's exhortation to you in Ephesians 5, 28, where Paul says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. That's where we're going today. Brothers, you knew this was coming. You didn't run away. Praise the Lord for that. This is a ladies' weekend all the way through and through. (laughs) The why then are we in Luke 17, 3? I want to begin where we will end our time at repentance. The gospel is repentance. Repentance is the gospel. Mark 1, 15, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. In his last words in Luke 24, 47, Jesus says, repentance is... And the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations starting in Jerusalem. Repentance came up this week in our community groups in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where we learned of worldly repentance and godly repentance, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to Christ's plan and his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, pay attention to Jesus' command in the text here in Luke 7, 17, verse 3. He provides the process of peace for, and redemption for us, which is a direct match for what will be happening this morning at Community Bible Church. Luke records, Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 3 of his gospel, Be on guard. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Did you see the order there? See the program? That's your outline for Sunday, April 24th. I will do the rebuking of the husbands for one hour from Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. Husbands, you will do the repenting, and wives, you will do the forgiving. <laughs> now, do we all understand our part in this process? Okay, fantastic, good. Okay, the day is set then. This will be a good day. And for the joy set before us, then I would ask that you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We will return to our discussion about marital redemption and husbands loving wives in chapter 5, but only by way of review about this, about how Paul, how and why Paul can make these bold commands that we read in Ephesians 5, 25, 28, and 33, where he says three times in nine verses, husbands, love your wives. This command is so countercultural when it was spoken 2,000 years ago, and yet it is so necessary for Christ's plan for his church This is a command, this command, I should say, literally changed the world. 
not in its own strength, so to speak, but certainly coupled with the force of all the New Testament revelation, which points to Jesus Christ dying to save sinners who collectively are called the church, the body of Christ, even the bride of Christ. You see, friends, God's glory is tied to biblical marriage in a very profound way. One man, one woman, just like Jesus and his bride, the church. We will see the boldness and the certainty in our text today. The boldness of the Bible's claims and commands creates a confrontation and even anger in a sin-sick, sin-filled world. Even Christians take great exception to being bossed around by the Apostle Paul. You have New York Christians, Italian, Sicilian, Russian, Jewish Christians. These are the kind of Christians that they don't let anyone boss them around ever. Not even the Apostle Paul. To those bold Christians, they would instantly ask something like, who does Paul think he is commanding me? Where does he get the authority to command me around? That's a great question. And the answer for that question is in chapters 1 to 3, where Paul teaches you about salvation. God's view of salvation is what he teaches in chapter 1 of Ephesians. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, you have what I call Trinitarian salvation. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, all actively working together to bring about your salvation. It's what I call monergistic salvation as opposed to synergistic salvation. A synergistic salvation where you work and God works and somehow the two just come together, that's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is a monergistic salvation. You see it in chapter 1, where God does the work. He is the agent of salvation. Salvation is entirely one-sided. God saves his enemies against their free will. That's a good thing, right? And just in case you didn't get the picture of salvation in Ephesians 1, which I also like to call the heavenly vantage point, Paul writes Ephesians chapter 2, which presents man's view of salvation, which is where you're at now, which opens up with these words. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, but then verse 4, what's it say? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, For we are his custom craftsmanship, his, his meticulously special detailed piece that he's created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And at this point, even our New York Christian brothers and sisters would have reason to put their hands over their mouth and repent. We are plainly taught by Scripture. God is the Creator, the Savior, the Lord, sovereignly in control of all things. Salvation is a free gift that He applies. It's given to those who don't deserve it and could never earn it. Not only does God give salvation, furthermore, He's prepared good works for those elect, adopted, redeemed, saved children to do. Turning your Bibles now to Ephesians 5, verse 15. If by the power of the Holy Spirit of God you are able to understand what I'm preaching to you, then you, friend, must ask the question, what does God want me to do? How must I respond to God? Well, let me give you four quick answers to those two questions in case those are what's on your mind this morning. Number one, bring glory to God with the whole of your life. This is the reason for your existence, the purpose of your life. Bring glory to God. Quick response, number one. Number two, read his word. Number three, believe his promises. Number four, 
What's it going to be? Obey his commands. These simple four responses. Bring glory to God, read his word, believe his promises, obey his commands. Your obedience is glory to God. Friend, obedience will work out extremely well for you in this life. For God's glory and for your good. And next, you should be asking the question, well, then what does God expect from me? What are his commandments? How do I go about generating glory for him? Glad you asked. You're in Ephesians 5, verse 15, where we received Paul's fifth and final walking command in this text. This is walking, how, how you live, living, walking. He uses this illustration. He's already told God's elect, adopted, redeemed, saved children, those whom he has given ears to hear. We like this acronym at CBC, EARS, E-A-R-S, election, adoption, redemption, salvation. Paul has commanded these ones in chapter 4, verse 1, saying to you, Christian, walk worthy of the calling into which you've been called. Chapter 4, verse 17, don't walk like your old Gentile ways. Don't live in those evil ways. Chapter 5, verse 1, or verse 1 and verse 2, imitate God. Walk in love just like Jesus Christ loved you. Chapter 5, verse 8 says, then walk as children of the light. You were formerly darkness. You have been made children of light. Notice, you didn't make yourself children of light. You have been made children of light. Verse 15, then Paul says, you can read it in the text with me, verse 15, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So you ask the question, how do we walk wisely? How do we learn and discern the will of the Lord? What is the will of the Lord? It is this. Even as we read Romans 5 earlier, it is this. Relationship, redemption. That's what you see in the cross. Relationship, redemption. He wants that for his people. He wants that for his people among each other. This is what we see next in the text, where as Paul wisely walks us down a path in the following verses in chapter 5, down the path of wisdom, which leads through the land of 10 relationships, where he provides us with 10 relationship redemption strategies. Relationship redemption begins at chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul presents redemption for four eternal relationships with the Spirit with believers, with Christ, with the Father. At chapter 5, verse 21, then we cross the bridge of submission, humbling all believers in Jesus' church to one another. At chapter 5, verse 22, Paul presents relationship redemption in three pairs of earthbound relationships, that of husband and wife, of parent and child, and of slave and master from 522 all the way through 69. Walking wisely, then, has to be understood in this context of redeeming relationships. If you are God's elect, adopted, redeemed, saved, children of light, then you will walk wisely, filled with the Holy Spirit, redeeming relationships to the glory of God. God's grand glory plan is tied to relationship redemption, first us to him, and next us to one another. And of Paul's 10 relationship redemption strategies, we have looked at six to this point today in our text as we're walking through this text together. We, we've looked at six of these ten relationship redemption strategies. We are at Husbands Love Your Wives, and we will continue today at point number six in these ten relationship redemption strategies. Number six is Husbands Love Your Wives. That's the focus of our time this week as it was two weeks ago. Husbands Love Your Wives. So we'll have part two then today. This is part two. 
And let's read marital redemption again now from, five, from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, where Paul commands us, read the text with me, saying this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Nowhere does the Bible offer a more direct or sustained explanation of biblical marriage and marital redemption than in these 12 verses presented by Paul. 75% of these 12 verses are directed at husbands, commanding and reasoning with us men to love our wives. That's nine of these 12 verses. Last week, I shared with you an outline for these nine verses addressing husbands, and I told you in the text that Paul illustrates the sum total of Christ's love for the church in three distinct images. We went over image one last week. It's in the text there that Paul paints the impossible task of loving Christ in three powerful portraits of love. The sum total of Christ's love is seen in these three portraits that Paul paints. The first is the sanctity of love. We saw that last week in verses 25 to 27. Second, and for today, we will look at the unity of love in verses 28 through 30. And third, next week, we will look at the mystery of love in 31 to 33. The sanctity of love, the unity of love, the mystery of love. Last week, this week, next week. The last week, or actually since two weeks ago, before Resurrection Sunday, we tackled the sanctity of love where Paul expects husbands to love our wives just like Christ loved the church through sacrifice and sanctification unto glorification. If you remember that conversation, it ends with this idea that Christ is presenting to himself the church in all of her glory. It's a heavenly thought. It's an eternal state thought. Christ has been blessing his bride for the last 2,000 years and won't stop until he presents her to himself in heaven forever, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The sanctity of love is Paul's highest reasoning for husbands to love their wives. It might be so high in Paul's thinking that it, maybe it goes over the heads of some of the strong-willed and stubborn men among him and maybe among us, which is why Paul shares a second powerful portrait in Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. As if the first portrait of a husband's love wasn't hurtful and instructive enough for us, today we come to Paul's second portrait, number two in your notes, in the focus of our time this week, number two, the, the second of three powerful portraits, the unity of love the unity of love. Some total number two of Christ's love is the unity of love in verses 28 through 30. So this is where we'll spend our time today, at the unity of love as we look at part two in this message to husbands. Where is the unity of love in the text? 
Unity is understood in this text in bodily oneness. We see bodily oneness, that is bodily unity in the text where Paul says in 528, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. If you're paying attention to Paul's pictures, we just dropped from the image of Christ in heaven at, the, at his wedding supper for the Lamb, where he's presenting to his, himself his bride, holy and blameless in all of her glory. And we've come now down, down, down to earth and the image of the body of a man. If image one flew right over your head because it was such a high and lofty thought of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, then image number two is a slap in the face back to the reality of bodily life on earth. John Stott says, Paul seems to descend from the very lofty standard of Christ's love to the rather low standard of self-love. He says the probable explanation for Paul's descent to the more mundane level of self-love is that he is always a realist. We know from everyday experience, he says, how we love ourselves. Clint Arnold agrees, saying, men naturally care for themselves in every conceivable, every conceivable way, sometimes to an excess. We would say oftentimes to an excess. So Paul attacks husbands here on a very base level, on the level of unity, even the unity that husband knows and experiences inside of his own flesh, inside of his own body. Because once you are married, biblically, you are one flesh with your wife. And Paul knows you love your body and that you go to great lengths to care for it. John MacArthur says, at no time in modern history have people more sinfully pampered, protected, nourished, and indulged the body as in our own day. The amount of money spent just to decorate, protect, enhance, comfort, and display the body is incalculable. Brothers, this is not those other people in the world outside these doors. This is us. We do this. This is you. Take responsibility. Repent, even now. Turning your Bibles into 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, we'll look at verse 7. We love to love ourselves. From entertainment to animals for companionship. From physical fitness to food. From clothing to cars. From together vacation time to private alone time. We take care of number one. We do it daily. We do it continually. Husbands, brothers, this text is a rebuke to us. Paul is saying, if you won't see the love of Christ for his bride, then at least see the love you have for your own body. Offer that same bodily love to your wife. She is your body. Love in Ephesians 5.28 is not eros love, that's erotic love, nor is it phileo love, which is brotherly love. This is agape love. It's used six times in nine verses. It is the highest, most selfless unconditional love understood best as the love of God. You're in 1 John chapter 4 where we read a lot about the love of God. It gives us the explanation of the love of God where John says in 1 John 4 verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, 
the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is saying all Christians must agape love one another, which is absolutely true for all of us in the body of Christ. And then the argument would go, how much more must Christian husbands agape love their wives based on the bodily oneness they share in the covenant union of marriage? The verb creating this command on your life is the verb ophelo, which means to owe, to be in debt to, to be obligated. John offers this sense of obligation here in John, 1 John 4.11, saying all Christians in the body of Christ are obligated to love one another. Jesus offers the same sense of obligation to the disciples on the night of glory after washing their feet, saying to them in John chapter 13, verse 14, If then the Lord and teacher of you, I washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our brethren. Do you hear the obligation? 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Again, obligation. From love to sacrifice to these walking commands, it seems that John himself is speaking Paul's language right out of Ephesians chapter 5. Turn back in your Bibles there to Ephesians 5. Look at verse 28. With Paul's command to love and his picture of a husband's bodily oneness with his wife, we have to look at this and see that, you know what Paul wants? He wants to start class. He's saying class is in session, husbands. Let's talk about bodily oneness. Let's talk about unity. Let's talk about the unity that you need to experience with your wife. Paul, in the text today, schools husbands on three marks of marital unity that demand husbands love their wives. It is here in the text at Ephesians 5.28 that Paul delivers three lessons on the unity of love, insisting husbands love like Christ. What three lessons on the unity of love demand husbands love their wives like Christ? Lesson number one is in verse 28 at part B, where we see love your body good. Lesson number one, he teaches, love your body good. Lesson number two, hate your body bad. Hate your body bad. And number three, he says, picture his body brilliant. This is our outline. It'll serve as a simple outline for us today. Love your body good. Hate your body bad. Picture his body brilliant. Let's start by looking at the first of these three lessons of unity, lessons on the unity of love in our notes. The first of three lessons on the unity of love is in verse 528b, where we see number one in your notes, love your body good. Where in the text does Paul say, love your body good? Well, he says it in Ephesians 5:28b, where he says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. This text is seemingly outrageous. Is Paul actually advocating Selfish love seems to be the case. Sounds horribly awkward and entirely wrong. 
except that you were to understand biblical unity knowing the depths of bodily oneness. In Paul's worldview, you see, your wife is you. Therefore, his axiom or his truism states, wife love is self-love. Go ahead and love her all you want because this love is actually love of yourself. For the last two days, our wives have been delighting themselves in the women's conference here, rejoicing that Dr. Shelby Cullen came from the Master's University sharing how to walk in Christ in uncertain times. Many of you husbands were left at home to care for the kids. Others of you were just holding down the fort, trying to make sure that you got your daily food. <laughs> Are you angry about that, brothers? You shouldn't be angry at all. Because number one, time with the kids is always necessary. And number two, when you love and serve your wife, you are loving and serving your own body. The women's conference was better to our bodies than grouse hunting, hockey, or golf, especially golf. <laughs> our flesh is better today because we loved our wives on Friday and Saturday. Do you see how this works? Do, do you think about love on terms of bodily oneness with her? Some men don't. Allow me to share the story of a husband who was counseled by Paul Tripp, a man named Chris. Chris met his wife Sarah at college and married her because they had similar Christian backgrounds. In addition to loving good food and the outdoors and fitness, small towns, they also loved coffee together. He thought it funny that Sarah was driven and focused in life, even teasing her about planning their entire life within the three days after their wedding. After college graduation, they found life in a small town right away with a good job in a local church just as Sarah had decided and desired. And it was right in time as the kids would follow in the years that came. Everything was supposedly going so well except for this one thing, love in their marriage, love to one another. No one in their church or their family had a clue. They were full of public smiles and private pain. Chris was tired of being controlled and smothered by Sarah and all of her expectations for their perfect marriage together. He moved to a place of silence and distance toward her, retreating to work, to the kids, to service in the church, never willing to lovingly tackle their issues head on. Until one night, Paul Tripp says, Chris sat at his desk in his office and realized that he had been staring at a flickering laptop for a long time. When he came to and realized what he had been thinking about, his thoughts scared him. For the first time, he had been fantasizing about a life, about what life would look like without Sarah. It sobered him that thoughts of being single would be so comfortable and attractive to him, but they were at this time in his life. Clearly, Chris was not meditating on Ephesians 5.28. He had no recognition that marriage to Sarah is oneness to Sarah from Jesus' perspective. He allowed his thoughts to grow cold and loveless. Chris experienced total failure on this point. Love your body good. He thought evil of his wife to the point that he wanted her gone. This is hatred. And they were both suffering underneath the leader of the house's hatred of his own body, his wife. Moreover, the glory of God suffered, their kids suffered, and their church suffered. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. 
hate your body bad. The second of three lessons on the unity of love, hate your body, that's bad. In verse 529, Chris should have been practicing what Paul Tripp calls marital love in action. Paul lists off over 20 actions that define marital love. I'll give you just five of them. Paul Tripp says, marital love is a willingness to make regular and costly sacrifices for the sake of your marriage without asking anything in return. It is willingness to invest time to discuss, examine, and understand problems. It is willingness to examine your heart rather than rising to defend yourself. Marital love is willingness to ask forgiveness and to grant forgiveness when asked. Marital love is daily admitting to yourself, your wife, and God that you are not able to love this way without God's protecting, providing, forgiving, rescuing, and saving grace. If that list is helpful to you, you can imagine how helpful the rest of those 20 would be to you. Chris was hating his wife instead of loving her. And in so doing, he was breaking a second axiomatic saying or truism that Paul offers regarding marital bodily oneness, saying in chapter 5, verse 29a, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Paul would ask Chris, Do you hate your own flesh, man? Why are you hating your wife? Don't hate your wife. Don't be that guy. What gain comes from hating your own body? It shouldn't surprise you to know that false religious systems have successfully employed self-hatred as a means of godliness for years. The Roman Catholic system uses hatred and punishment of the body for religious purposes. The practice is called asceticism, which is the intentional denial and punishment of the body in an attempt to get closer to God, it is so believed. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 4.20. 1 John 4.20. When he was a Roman Catholic monk, Martin Luther practiced asceticism, self-denial, what they call self-sacrifice, which is awkward when you think about Christ's sacrifice. But nevertheless, self-sacrifice. For years, Martin did this, including sleeping on stone floors in the middle of winter without any comforts like a pillow or a blanket. It's a demonstration, asceticism is, for many, of human strength, even a source of great pride to those who practice these things very well. Martin Luther said, I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. I was a good monk, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by this monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Now certainly the practice of self-control is essential in the Christian life, but do you really believe that hatred of your own body affords you greater proximity to God, bringing greater glory to God? If, if we can say that about asceticism, how much less Will you draw near to God and bring glory to Him when you are hating your spouse who is your body? There's no room in biblical Christianity for hating your wife. It's a direct violation of commandments number one and number two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On a very simple level, your wife is a very close neighbor, and you're commanded by Christ to love her. Moreover, if she becomes hostile toward you and becomes your enemy, you're told in Matthew 5.44 to 
Love your enemies. There's no escape in this, brothers. Consider 1 John 4.20, where the Apostle John says in verse 20 of chapter 4 of 1 John, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, that man is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen with his eyes cannot love God whom he has not seen. So too, I shall tell you, is it is the case with your wife. Chris hated his wife Sarah. Sorry, Chris's hatred of his wife Sarah was a denial of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he proclaimed with his own mouth. He caught himself playing the hypocrite, which broke his heart and allowed for repentance in that next season of life. How many of us are playing the wife-hating hypocrite Christian today? Brothers, how many of you are presently hating your wife like Chris? Wives, how many of your husbands have stopped talking, entered silence, except for necessary conversations, and they act like disgruntled house guests toward you? Brothers, how many of your marriages are whitewashed tombs which inside hold dead men's bones? How many of you are filled, how many of you have filled your heart with hatred of your wife, whether previously or now, when the Bible tells you to love her like you love your own body? Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 5:29. Brothers, can't you see? You've allowed the enemy of your soul into your mind if your actions don't agree with Paul that hating your wife is bad. Paul will deal with Satan and his attack on us in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, when we will be called on to stand and put on the armor of God. Before we stand and put on the armor of God and battle Satan at chapter 6, verse 12, we need to walk wisely redeeming our marriages by positively loving our wives good and negatively refusing to hate them. Paul says, don't hate your own flesh. That's stupidity. Rather, in sharp contrast to and opposition of hatred, he says wives should be nourished and cherished just like you do your own flesh. Nourish is the Greek word ektrepho, which means to bring up from childhood, to feed or to nourish. It is only used twice in the New Testament, here and at chapter 6, verse 4 in Ephesians, where fathers are told to bring up their children, to feed their children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. In Genesis 45, Joseph is restoring his relationship with his brothers who sold him into slavery and sent him off to Egypt. The Lord made Joseph second in command of all of Egypt under the Pharaoh. You remember a famine hit the land and his family needed food, so they come racing to him, the one whom they had kicked out. And so in Genesis 45, verse 7, Joseph explained to his brothers, saying to them when they showed up for food, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to ectrepho you, to keep you alive by a great deliverance. David in Psalm 23, 2 says that his shepherd leads him beside quiet waters. Again, this is in the Septuagint, ectrepho, feeding, nourishing, keeping alive and healthy. Turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Cherishing is the Greek word thalpo, which means to heat, to inflame, or by extension to comfort, 
to warm or to cherish. And so we have nourishing and we have cherishing and we have thalpo. Thalpo is cherishing. Clint Arnold says thalpo is a word that appears throughout the Bible for the kind of care parents provide for their children. It's a word of relational intimacy. In the sense of nearness, desire, and compassion, thalpo, which is exactly what Paul was communicating to the Thessalonians about his own love and care for them, saying in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares, that is thalpo, tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. I want to say this very clear, just in case anybody tries to extract from Scripture, that's what they should not. Paul is not a nursing mother, okay? He's not a nursing mother. You can't extract that and make some kind of social justice gospel out of that. Paul is not a nursing mother. It's an illustration, and he is in this illustration, greatly respecting and appreciating the comfort and care and tenderness and warmth of nursing mothers and their willingness to joyfully supply care and love to their infant children. Brothers, our pattern is to love our own bodies with ectrepho and thalpo, nourishing and cherishing our own flesh. We do that. We do that well. And the big question for us this morning is, when will we value our wives like we value our own bodies? When will we care, when will our care of her achieve the brilliance, the warmth, and the comfort pictured in the tenderness of a nursing mother for her infant? Shall our love for our wives arrive at the brilliance pictured in Jesus' love for his bride, the church? Yes, absolutely. That's the goal. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, 29, and we'll look at verse, the second half of that verse, B, where we've come to the third point in your notes today. The third of three lessons on the unity of love. Picture his body brilliant. Lesson number three, picture his body brilliant. Chapter 5, verse 29B. This freshman-level class in marital unity is not complete until Paul paints his most powerful portrait of bodily oneness. And we see next, Paul captures the oneness of husband and wife in the marriage of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. What makes Jesus' body, the church, brilliant? What would you say to somebody if they ask you that? What, what makes Jesus' body, the church, what makes it brilliant? In the words, just as... Here in the text, Paul is saying, Jesus has brilliantly, perfectly, agape loved the church, nourishing and cherishing the church as his own body, because that's how he sees us, his church. She is brilliant and radiant because of all he has accomplished for her. She is his body the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and she is brilliant because of his love, favor, grace, and sacrifice to make her brilliant. Harold Honer says, even with all of its imperfections, Christ nurtures and takes tender care of his body, the church, to which we are all blessed to be part of. Even, even this new church plant, less than two years old, Community Bible Church, 
Read with me in the text at the midpoint of chapter 5, verse 29, where Paul says, just as. He says, just as. Christ also does the church. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Notice that Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater by way of an illustration, a picture, an example. Supreme love for a wife is pictured in Christ's love for his body, the church. Men should love their wives just like, because, in parallel with, in kind to, the way our Messiah loves his bride, the church. Jesus' love for the church is easily understood if you can see that all Christians, the elect, the adopted, the redeemed, the saved, they're all members, like all of y'all who are saved are members of his body. You can understand his love for the church in the idea that we share oneness with him and each other. He tells his disciples in John 14 that he and the Father will be in us. His Holy Spirit lives in us. We have the mind of Christ given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. How wonderful for us to know we are loved by Christ who nourishes and cherishes his elect, adopted, redeemed, saved members of his body, the church. This happened then, when he died on a cross to save us. It's happening now, and it will happen off into glorification in eternity. You should ask then, how does Christ love, nourish, and cherish us, the members of his body? What aspects of Jesus' love create the body brilliance that he desires for his bride, the church. We'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, we'll look at verse 7. Wayne Mack is a pastor in Africa. He wrote several books here stateside before he left. He says, this much we do know about the love of Christ for his people. And he gives us then a list of eight aspects of Christ's love, saying Christ's love is an unconditional love from Romans, 8, or Romans 5, verse 8, which we read earlier. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wayne says Christ's love is an intense love, an unending love, an unselfish love. How unselfish? Philippians 2, verse 7. He, kenosis, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, was he. Wayne Mack goes on to say Christ's love is a purposeful love that it is a sacrificial love, that it is a volitional love, a love of the will. He loves from his will. You're in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read the text from verse 5 through 8, where Paul, through the Lord, says, He predestined us, that is God, verse 5, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he, God, freely bestowed on us in the beloved one, Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Christ's love is, according to Wayne Mack, a manifested love as well. Wayne says he manifests his love in words and deeds. He tells us he loves us, and he shows us he loves us, just as we see in John chapter 10, verse 14, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, verse 2. 
Dr. Stuart Scott says that Christ's love for us is both perfect and undeserved. And I would certainly hope that you feel that this morning, that the love of Christ for you is perfect and undeserved. Stuart Scott goes on to say, this is the kind of love we should show to our wives. That's hurtful. And then he makes nine observations of Christ's love, saying Christ's love is this. Christ's love is enduring. Christ's love is something that has been verbalized. Christ's love is initiated by him first. Christ's love is compassionate. It is demonstrated by action. It does what is best for us. It involves treasuring us, even though we are not worthy to be treasured. Christ's love is not based on performance, he says, which is massive because so often in our lives, not being sacrificial, we choose to love our wives when they deliver performance. And then if performance is had, then we can love. Stuart Scott goes on to finish his list of nine observations by saying Christ's love is absolutely sacrificial. The supreme sacrifice is what you see in Ephesians 5, verse 2, where Paul says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The brilliance of Jesus' bride is noted in the price paid for her redemption to make her brilliant. Brothers, Jesus could not have paid any more for his bride. Could he have? He sacrificed himself. He took our names to that cross. He knows us personally. How shall we not also sacrifice ourselves for our wives? He set the example, did he not? Are God's daughters unworthy of our sacrifice for them? They are gifts from God. Your wife is God's grace and favor placed on your head. Can you sense your obligation to love her for the glory of God? This is the path to peace. This is purpose in life. This is marital redemption. Love yourselves, brothers. Love yourselves by loving your wife. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Ephesians 2.12. Brothers, I believe that often in life we lose sight of our purpose or we don't even know what our purpose in life is. Well, let me give you purpose. When we are without purpose, we toil around in our sinfulness, building up the walls of our own wicked little kingdoms that we try to make. We allow our emotions and our thoughts to control us when we need to be guided by biblical truth, biblical revelation, biblical principles, and biblically driven purposes. We lose the battle in our minds left and right all the time. Battles with food and lust, work and play. Battles with communication, either going silent or speaking too much. Battles with impatience, unthankfulness, and a critical spirit. Battles when grace, goodness, and kindness are needed and we are unwilling to deliver them. Victory requires purpose. Victory requires identity, even supreme eternal reasoning, which is what Paul lays out in our text today. Wayne Mack says Christ's love is purposeful. Amen. Dr. Stuart Scott says Christ's love does what is best for us, particularly in the way of identity. Let me give you supreme reasoning as we march into this text regarding love for your wife. It's seen through Christ's love for his church. It's seen in texts like these. Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. It's in John 10, 14, when he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down 
for my sheep, verse 15. It's in texts like this, Ephesians 5.30, where he says, we are members of his body. Now, I understand if you're paying attention, that's three different metaphors. But brothers, these word pictures are your treasure. These word pictures are eternal, divine, spiritual realities. Oh, that you would see them. I pray that God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see that you may know Jesus' divine purpose for your life. If you are his sheep, he's building a church, using you to build his church. You're members of his body. That's life, that's purpose, that's meaning. Now you're in Ephesians 2.12 where we read further about Jesus' eternal purposes. He purposed to die on a cross to reconcile all kinds of men to God through his body. This was the only path to peace and reconciliation for his bride, the church, that would allow him to build her up into all the glory and splendor that he wanted for her, even into a spiritual temple for the Lord. We read from Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 12 and following. He says, remember, verse two, chapter 2, verse 12, remember, remember, Christian, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, the Ten Commandments, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, the hostility that existed. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Know your purpose in this life. Know your purpose. Know your place. If you're not in the church, where are you? There's so much happening for Christ in his church. Where do you get to go to be washed and cleansed and bathed and refreshed and renewed in these truths? Where do you go? You read your Bible, don't you? You come to church, and not just for the holidays, but you come every week because you have a longing and a desire to know these truths. You get involved with community groups. You do your Bible study feasting on the word of God. You attend the men's breakfast and pray for the brothers, lingering around a long time to find out what their needs are as well. You may even consider coming in for biblical counseling because if you are ever truly going to love yourself in this life, you are going to get on board with Jesus' plan for your life and you are going to love your wife just like he loves his church. Is that where your priority is? Turn in your Bibles to Luke 17. Luke 17. We know righteousness. We know the will of the Lord. We know Jesus' great purposes for us. 
When will we simply repent, believe, and obey? Perhaps you're wondering about, Christ, about the man Chris who I mentioned earlier. Chris and Sarah. Did he reconcile his marriage to Sarah? How did he do that? What happened with Chris and Sarah? Paul Tripp says that Chris and Sarah were brought to the end of themselves through their loveless drought. Their sad moment, he says. That moment, that night on the computer, when he finally caught himself hating his wife. That deep, dark moment was a moment of wonderful, God-given, grace-infused repentance opportunity. Theirs was a story of persevering and transforming grace. You see, it turns out that Chris confessed that he had never loved Sarah in the fullest sense of biblical agape love. He confessed he never did that. He repented and sought her forgiveness. Sarah forgave Chris, and from that point they were wisely walking the path of marital redemption as Chris truly began to love his wife like his own body. Dare I say, Chris truly began to love his wife like Christ loves the church. Someone will cry out, but he's going to fail again. He's going to fail again. You're going to fail again. What do you say about that, preacher? Let me tell you what I say about that. That's obvious. There's no one in here who's perfect. If you're perfect, you came to the wrong place. There's an unperfect people in here. We know this. We know you're going to fail again. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in Luke 17, 3 and 4? He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Brothers, the charge for you today is to love your wife good. To hate your wife never. To rejoice in the bride of Christ always. Because there is purpose and meaning and identity for your life. My hour is done. You have sufficiently been rebuked, brothers. Your task is to repent. And as we think about your repentance and the need for your wife's loving forgiveness, I will pray for both of you. Let me pray for us now.